You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Really, it has been good, right? We're in the second week of two coming back together to be together. And uh, certainly it's always good to be in the presence of God and the presence of one another. But there's something different about one, being isolated in spaces for at least as a church family, 34 weeks via Zoom and to come back last week and to to be together. And then there's probably something else in which we show up again and it's like, oh, it's consistent now. So here we are again. But not only that, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. We're still on the heels of a racial reckoning and the work that follows. And now here we are days after a contentious and stressful election that I guess technically is not done. I don't know. So at the risk of trying to over explain what happens in this mysterious space of when we gather together, I just want to say that it's good to be here with all of you. And I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into the rich but intense life of the prophet Amos. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we Again, welcome you here. We thank you that you are a God who meets us, who is with us, who's for us. And we invite you today to teach us, to shape us, to mold us, to grow us deep into your love. And God, I pray that in the the midst of these times that we're naming them to be, We would encounter you, but we would also embody you. We would meet you and we would know you. We would love you. We would love others and we would love ourselves in the midst of it all. God, I pray for myself this evening that you would give me your words to speak. And I pray that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you and that anything that might end up slipping in, you would just let us forget, God. And that you would make us more into your son, Jesus, and into your people today. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how does one prepare a sermon for this week? I felt the pressure to preach a sermon that meets the expectations of the moment in our shared history. I've stared at blank journal pages, blinking cursors on a computer screen, opened Bibles, stacked commentaries. I've scrolled Twitter, and Instagram, and Facebook, and news sites. I've revisited the words and work of women and men speaking hope throughout history. I've intentionally sought the words of black women scholars and Latino organizers and Filipino reconcilers. And this information overload is like pressing on the inside of my skull. And I'm not saying that I'm smarter informed because of all of that. I'm actually just saying that I'm spent. Like I'm, I'm tapped out. And in a final like fit of, of pent up rage that's probably been covering up my grief and my confusion and even my joy, I just conceded this week that all I knew to say was come Lord Jesus and make all things new. And you see that this week though, that I actually realized I'm not up to the task of of speaking a a word 
that is for the sake of this moment, like pastorally presidential. I'm not up to the task of speaking a word that quells the nation's fears and brings unity to cover up 400 years of division. The only prophetic task I felt like I was up to for this Sunday was to humbly share with all of you my present in this very moment, family, in this present location that we all occupy. That's all we get to do is show up in the spaces we walk around in. So I am up to that task, not necessarily to quote unquote, preach a word from the Lord, but to stand before you this evening as one who sought the wisdom of Jesus and longs for his ways to be our ways. That's what I know how to do. And that's what we're gonna try to do together. Ironically enough though, I'm not gonna begin with Jesus. In the global church's weekly lectionary, there's texts for each Sunday. And the Old Testament text for this Sunday is in Amos 5. And there's one verse in particular for any of you justice seekers out there that has probably rung true and you'll recognize it immediately. And it was early last week, even before all of the election stuff began to unfold, that I decided this was the text we needed for November 8th, 2020. And then I sat with it this whole week and God spent the week just convicting me through it, challenging me through it. And so let me share that journey with all of you. I'm gonna read the passage for us. The text is Amos 5, 18 through 24, if you're interested in following along. Here's how it reads. Woe, W-O-E, woe. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of hope or joy. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living." And all God's people said, ugh, what? First, let's meet Amos. Amos is a, a migrant farmer from the southern region of Judah. You see, at this point in history, around 750 BC, the, the people of Israel are in fact divided into two groups. Can you imagine people divided into two groups? Happened even back then. And so here comes Amos traveling south, going up north, crossing the border into the northern kingdom to preach a message from the Lord. But Amos is in denial. Amos denies that he's a prophet. History doesn't deny that, but Amos does. He's a farmer, an owner of fruit trees, a dresser of the sycamores, it says in Amos 7. 
He's first in the line of what is known as the writing prophets because he has a way with words, these prophets who would write so poetically. Amos shows up in the Northern kingdom in the pivotal places of worship, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. And when he shows up into those spaces, what does he do? He eviscerates the people of God. He denounces their injustice, their corruption, their greed, their false worship, and their oppression of the poor. Can you imagine a people group doing such a thing as that? Right, to put it plainly, the role of a prophet like Amos is to point out the ugliness that everyone is tiptoeing around. Amos is the ultimate killjoy. And for a time such as this in this divided kingdom, it's extra ironic that he shows up preaching the words that he preaches because there's actually peace between the two regions. There's no outright fighting, no outright war. And yet in that space, he says, you're using that as an excuse for the injustice, the corruption, the greed, the false worship and your oppression of the poor. And so he shows up on the scene, giving voice to the rage of God that's undoubtedly intermingled with his own. And, and just like for a moment, can you relate at the very least to feeling any bit of rage? So to set the tone for the passage today, what Amos does when he opens up chapter five is he opens it up with God lamenting, which is just the perfect reminder to be people who are lamenting and we will lament and we'll have to continue to lament. And his words in chapter five tumble out of him like a funeral dirge. And through Amos, God is pleading for his people to come back to him and live. Seek him and live, he says. The verb here in Hebrew is, is derash. This idea of coming back, of seeking Wilda Gaffney describes this word in all its fullness by saying, it's a journey for truth to seek with your heart, your hands, your face, and your feet. Amos essentially longs for his people's entire beings to return to the ways of God. He says, if we seek the living God, we will live. So let's return to the words from this farmer, prophet, poet, Amos. And essentially we have to do the work of exegeting the cry of God that says to us, seek him and live. So here we visit the first three verses again. What sorrow awaits you? Whoa, what sorrow awaits you? If, if you say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. That's hilarious, by the way. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. And we're like, Amos, chill, bro. What are you talking about? The day of the Lord is not supposed to be like that. So why does he keep saying that those who long for the day of the Lord will experience sorrow and darkness and not a ray of hope or joy? 
Scholars believe enough that it seems clear that the Israelites at Bethel, which was their key location of worship in the Northern Kingdom, assume that the day of the Lord they're longing for means victory for them against any enemy they can conjure up. Whatever their enemy might be, lest it political, or it could be military, it could be personal, they believe that the day of the Lord will bring them victory against whoever they think their enemy might be. And so here's the contention that Amos brings on behalf of God. The day of the Lord was a longing for judgment on the other. And Amos says, beware, for you are ushering in judgment for yourselves. The moment you begin to long for that day to come for the other, you're actually calling it upon yourself as well. And he says to the people of God here in this moment, you've lost sight of what it means to be the people of God. Darkness is in fact upon you. You are no longer a community of righteous living and justice bringing. When we fail to see others in this way, he says, it's like running from a lion only to meet a bear and escaping the bear only to be bitten by a snake in your very house. What a picture. The judgment of the Lord, it seems, will find us apparently. And I'm again like Amos, what? So as we nurse our snake bites, we fumble for the light switch in the dark. We long for Amos to spare us the scolding. But Amos doesn't care. He's on the scene, irritating apathy. And still there's more. He brings more fire on behalf of God when he says, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And we're like, yeah, they need to stop with all of their music. And Amos is like, not talking about them. You see, it's one group of people, one people of God, but divided into two. And so Amos focuses his ire on the people's festivals, their assemblies, and their offering to God. Essentially, these are the things that are most personal to these people. How we worship, how we engage with one another, and what we give to God all actually speak volumes about who we are as individuals and as a community. And God wants us to pay attention, Amos says. Has worship just become a way to pass the time? Has worship just become a way to celebrate the status quo? Has worship just become a way to escape and feel good? Amos is shouting to us, ritual without action in the world is meaningless. We can go through all the motions all day long, he says, but it's meaningless until we join God in the work of justice and righteousness. And the tension is squarely set on the community because he keeps showing up in their places of worship. And he invites them right there. He says, who are you right now and who are you going to be? Essentially, every prophet who comes along gets to say that. You are not as you should be, but do you wanna be as you should be? 
And we can't just keep reading Amos pretending it's 750 BC when the present is right in front of us. Who are we? And who are we going to be? In this current cultural moment, we're faced with an ongoing temptation and we feel it distinctly at this moment in time, November 8th, six days or whatever it is, five days after an election that's still not settled, on the heels of four years of political mayhem that we haven't experienced collectively in quite some time. And now we all face the temptation of being what I found this week in my reading, a term called political hobbyists. The temptation to become people who know all the facts about all the politics. Just scroll and scroll and scroll and listen and listen and listen. Form opinion, form opinion, form opinion. Man, what a cool hobby, thinking about politics. And the next thing you know, we turn around. Our side won or they didn't. We go back to scroll and scroll and scroll, opinion and opinion and opinion. And our feet haven't touched the ground. We haven't walked around in the world that got to set us in. We don't know our neighbors and our coworkers. We might not even know our friends anymore. So finally we arrive at the punchline, the hinge point, the holy shift of what Amos has been setting up. Amos announces on God's behalf. He says, instead of all of that, I wanna see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And if you sat with any of the tension of what Amos just called out, you're like, okay, take me away. Let the water flow, right? Amos urges anyone who will listen to focus not on their sacred spaces and their spiritual rituals as their source of their well-being, but on a new liturgical practice that's characterized by extravagant justice and righteousness rushing through their community like a torrent of flood water. This flood that Amos talks about, this endless river is actually an image well-known in the desert communities of Israel. Should be well-known to us Phoenicians as well. Think of a monsoon rain in the summer, not this summer, because it didn't happen, but other summers. And the monsoon rain comes and it rushes immediately like a mighty water coming down a wash. He says that is the picture of the perpetual flow of justice that is meant to keep going and going and going. And unlike Noah's flood, this torrent river that Amos talks about is not meant to kill, it's meant to cleanse. It's quenching us in righteousness and reorienting us to that which is of the utmost importance, right relationship with God through each other. So perhaps... As Amos speaks over us, we need to stand beneath this waterfall of justice and righteousness once again. And just imagine yourself in this moment. You could even close your eyes and you're standing beneath a waterfall. Perhaps we need to, to strip down and wade into the water, drown in it, bathe in it, and let the water pelt us as we receive a fresh, 
a spiritual exfoliation. We can breathe again. What a romp in the river that would be. All of us, just imagine all of us in that waterfall. This justice that Amos sets before us partners with righteous living because we cannot join the work of holistic transformation if we operate in isolation. That's what was so hard even about the last seven months before this moment in time. And it's still hard because many of us are still isolated. We need to float the river of justice together. Which actually even sounds fun at times. Righteousness isn't determined by, it's not some ethical norm. Rather, it's a quality of life lived in right relationship. People doing right for other people, that is righteousness. And yes, justice then flows and it must out of that place before we embark on unity and reconciliation. There must be justice to bring it about. But Amos's call, I believe, reminds us that it is more likely that they flow together for righteous people living together enact justice. So therefore, reconciliation becomes a part of the flow. And as Amos is prophesying in a rage, this is a reminder that just rings forth today. He's angry. He's not coddling anybody. And he says, we must stop choosing our comfort over justice for other people. That's just flat out what he's saying. There's no wars going on. There's people oppressing the poor in their pursuit of affluence and comfort. We cannot let that keep us from the work of justice. Practically speaking, yes, there's about to be a new president in the White House for the next four years. A change many of us welcome. But what doesn't change is the work that is ahead in holding our politicians accountable for using their power to do justice and care for the common good. What doesn't change is how we pursue justice and righteousness and loving God and loving our neighbor each and every day. What doesn't change is the call to love our enemy and hold the tension what pursuing, what pursuing righteousness and justice this means in light of that enemy love call. What doesn't change is the role of the church to live in light of the Jesus kingdom that has come and is coming, that is ushering in the renewal of all things. Certainly the strategies will be different during a Biden presidency, but the work is ahead of us one way or the other. No president serves as our savior. We know that, but we need to know that. And many already in our diverse community have been showing us the way forward in that way. Let's float the river together. Let's be a church Kaleo who faithfully does justice, loves mercy and walks humbly with God together. And so to bring this full circle, the end, you know, like the day of the Lord, the one that first I found myself praying in preparation for this message that then Amos is like, woe is you who prays that. 
I'm like, well, okay. But it's still this day where all are reconciled with God and one another, where love has cast out any sin that remains. So it is then that justice is the work of becoming the people who populate the city on the day of the Lord and the age to come. And righteousness is what God's people embody, rooted in his love. And so while stomping around in a rage, Amos seems to have it right. The torrent river of justice will keep flowing right down the middle of God's city in the age to come. You see, John the Revelator, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, concludes with his final revelation for what is to come on the day of the Lord and in the heavenly city of God. This is Revelation 22, one through six. He paints the picture. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. Yes, Lord, give us more fruit. The leaves of the fruit were used for medicine to heal the nations. The fruit will heal us. No longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. We hear God announcing to us, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. May we receive that word from the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pause for a moment in this space. We envision again the river rushing down the middle of your city. Lord, place before us a picture of a torrent flood of justice And Lord, let us see in that river, raft after raft after raft of your people gathered together, floating it as a family, as people who need one another. And Lord, grant us a vision as Kaleo for what it means to do justice in this place at this time, in the moments and the spaces we occupy. And as you grant us that vision, would you remind us that you are the God who's gone before us, who goes with us and will come behind us. And in that process, 
of being people of justice. Would you join us in righteous living? Would that be a designation of our community? And would the prophets in our midst have space to speak their voices? Would you give us ears to hear what it is they have to say on your behalf? And then would we join together as one to seek you, to come back to you so that we might live with all of ourselves, Lord. And lastly, God, as we reach the end of a contentious week and stumble our way into the next, with at the very least a new season upon us in our country, would we not put our hope in politicians, but would we put our hope in you and call our politicians to embody what it is you invite us to? Would you bring healing to your nations as you paint that picture for us in Revelation? Would the healing come from the fruit that's produced by the water that flows down the middle of your city? To you be the glory, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.